0: Welcome back to TRP. Hi, and a very warm welcome back to the Rossler Podcast. Who was Countess Markovich? As a young student, Irish history ended with the Easter Rebellion in 1916. The period directly after that, i.e. the Irish Civil War, was simply taboo. No teacher would dare rake the coals of the recent past. Political division was still rife in the fledgling free state. You were simply pro-Eamon de Valera's anti-treaty forces, or pro-Michael Collins and his provisional free state government. To be brutally honest as a teenager in the 60s, I had as much interest in Irish politics as I had in in the knitting of a bonneen sweater. Despite my indifference to the past, which I have to say was only compounded by every school having to attend a screening of Misha Era*, a scratchy black-and-white documentary of Ireland's struggle for independence, interspersed with photos of volunteers training with hurleys over their shoulders. It was the mid-sixties and no kid worth his salt wasn't more interested in the top 20 and top of the pops. To be fair, even though I couldn't stand Seamus Ennis' playing the illan pipes for the soundtrack of the movie, I now, with the benefit of a slowly developing brain, realise what a wonderful piper he really was. I was living in a world of psychedelia and pop art and a dull black and white scratchy movie with no apparent stars simply didn't cut the mustard. Despite my aversion to the sad history, or should I say, watching the sad history, of the birthing pains of this young nation, I was intrigued when I heard the name Countess Markovich associated with the rebels. Looking at photos of the young woman in military attire precariously holding a pistol as if she was unsure as to how the mechanism worked, I, probably unfairly, assumed she was vainly involved in the precursor to the selfie, promoting an image of herself, trying to be something she wasn't, and all that in the comfort of a photographer's studio. With this preconception, I decided to delve further into our background. Constance Gore Booth was born in London in 1868 to Barnett and Arctic explorer Sir Henry Gore Booth and his wife, Georgina, knee-hill. The children were raised in Lissadell, a 32,000-acre estate in County Sligo. Perhaps I should quantify that. Her family was given the land, taken from the Irish, after the plantation of Ireland by Cromwell. The Gore Booths were considered good landlords and helped their tenants when times were hard. They were lovers of the arts and frequently had artists, musicians and poets at their home. William Butler Yeats, who became a good friend of the family, once described Constance and her younger sister Eva in his poem, written in 1933. In memory of Eva and Constance, it reads The light of evening, Lissadell, great windows open to the south. Two girls in silk kimonos, both beautiful. One, a gazelle. The girls were home-schooled, and in 1877 they were to meet Queen Victoria in Buckingham Palace. Yet, despite their wonderful education, the two young ladies were drawn to the plight of the less well-off. They became obsessed with social activism and were strong advocates of the suffragette movement in England, a cause close to Eva's heart. Constance concentrated more on supporting the Irish Republican movement. Constance, as a young woman, studied painting at the Slade School of Fine Art in London, and in 1892 she joined the National Union of Women's Suffragettes. She then moved to Paris to further her studies, where she met a fellow artist, Count Casimir Markovich. He was the wealthy son of a titled Polish family. They subsequently married, and Constance was to become known as Countess Markovich for the rest of her life. They had one child together, Maeve, born in 1901, who was raised mainly by her grandparents. The couple returned to Dublin, where Both were active in the art scene and accumulated many new friends from this section of society who also happened to support Irish culture and nationalism. The Contessa had no real political agendas but because of her circle of friends she began to delve into the history of Ireland. An article on Robert Emmet who was executed in 1803 for treason shocked her. He came from a wealthy family members of the Protestant Ascendancy, with a house in St Stephen's Green and a country retreat in Milltown. It was possibly his speech from the dock that most encouraged the Contessa to take up the cause of Irish freedom. In his speech he said these immortal words, Let them and me rest in peace and my tomb remain uninscribed and my memory in oblivion until other times and other men can do justice to my character. When my country takes her place amongst the nations of the earth, then, and not till then, let my epitaph be written. I have done. Countess Markovich began her quest to help Ireland achieve its long fought for independence. Her preoccupation with the cause was to result in her becoming estranged from her husband and her daughter. Her husband moved to Ukraine in 1914. She joined the Gaelic League and the Daughters of Irn, founded by Maud Gonne. the unrequited love of William Butler Yeats. She began attending working class meetings where she was initially frowned upon as being one of the privileged classes the workers were trying to destroy. Soon she became accepted as a genuine freedom fighter, someone who really cared for the plight of the Irish. She went on to join Sinn Féin, an Irish independence party, and her transition from artist to revolutionary was now complete. Eva was now living in Manchester, where she had immersed herself in women's rights and the woman's suffragette movement. The Countess travelled to England to help her sister's campaign to oust one politician whose porterhouse bill opposed women working as barmaids. That man was none other than Winston Churchill. Countess Markovich gave some of her very early political speeches over there in England. It is said that when she was driving a coach and four down the street, some misogynistic man shouted at her, Can you cook a meal? Her reply was, Yes. Can you drive a coach and four? Churchill went on to lose his seat. On returning to Ireland, she founded the Irish version of the Boy Scouts, Nathan Aaron where they were drilled in the use of firearms. Markovich became an admirer and supporter of Jim Larkin, who was in the process of setting up a trade union in Belfast. And things came to a head in 1913, when Larkin led a strike at the Dublin Electronic Tramway Company. The company was given armed police protection. Larkin was incensed. Why should the bosses be the only one with weapons? If they can arm, well, then so can we, he reasoned. The company hoped to starve the workers in their efforts to disrupt the strike. Larkin's response was that if any family was to go without food when there was food to be had in the shops, then they're the fools. Markovich opened up a food kitchen to help the families of the strikers. This further expanded her socialist outlook in life. At a time when the Crown forces were seeking to destroy the unions, she had stood tall to help the deprived, a deed that long remained in the people's memory. Her exploits did not go unnoticed, and James Connolly, founder of the Irish Socialist Party, began to form the Irish Citizens' Army to protect the strikers. Known as the Great Lockout, of 1913 it was to have a radical effect on the social consciousness of the irish when the tram workers walked out en masse, the tram company had them replaced by office staff many who had already been promoted from the trams angered the strikers attacked the headquarters at rings end and caused severe damage to property it is likely that the Strikers might have thrown in the towel if it was not for the events of that night. The rioting spread to the working class areas of the city. The following day police and Royal Irish Constabulary injured between 400 and 600 people with ferocious baton charges on O'Connell Street. A class war had broken out. The blatant use of British troops and police against the strikers furthered the national movement. Markovich was to become the Citizens' Army Honorary Treasurer. Europe was plunged into World War One with the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand. The result was a faltering of the independence movement as many supported the English cause in helping their European allies. Markovich became associated with the Irish Volunteers, whose slogan was We serve. Neither king nor kaiser, but Ireland. The Countess became an officer in the Citizens' Army, and plans were afoot as to when it might be a good time to strike for Irish freedom. The Irish Brotherhood chose Easter Sunday, 1916. Though Markovich knew that there was little chance of victory, she was prepared to make a stand. 1,200 members of the Volunteers and Citizens' Army gathered, much less than they had hoped for, and the proclamation was read out at the General Post Office on O'Connell Street, which included equal rights for women, including the right to vote. The Countess was a staff lieutenant stationed in the Stevens Green area of Dublin when the Rising broke out. After a week, it was all over, and the rebels were rounded up. She was sentenced to death along with the other leaders, but this was commuted to life in penal servitude because she was a woman. It is reported that she was angry that she was not allowed to die with her comrades. The execution of these brave young Irishmen was to sway Irish attitude to British rule, and though the rising failed militarily, It had sown the seeds for an independent Ireland. While she was reinterred in jail in 1918 for her opposition to conscription, she fought an election campaign and was the first ever woman to be elected to the UK Houses of Parliament. She never took her seat, refusing to swear an oath of allegiance to the Crown. Instead, She joined Dáil Éireann, an Irish parliament formed illegally to continue the struggle for independence. In that first parliament, she served as the Minister for Labour from 1919 to 1922. At that time, she was only the second woman to hold a cabinet position in the whole of Europe. She was also on the run from British forces and is quoted as saying when apprehended, that jail was the only place where she got the time to have a good read. Ireland was to receive Dominion status, a bit like Canada and Australia at the time, and the war for Irish independence began to take a back seat. But along with de Valera and others, she rejected the treaty, and the seeds were sown for civil war. She was instrumental in forming the Fianna Fáil political party, and was elected to Parliament again in 1927. But later that year, having given away most of her wealth, she died in a public ward of Sir Patrick Dunn's Hospital after complications following an appendix operation. Count Markovitch returned to be by her side for her final hours, and she died aged 53 on July 15, 1927. Because of her anti-treaty stance, she was refused a state funeral. De Valera was to be one of the pallbearers, and she was laid to rest in Glasnevin Cemetery. Thousands of people thronged the streets of Dublin to say a final farewell to this maverick woman, who forsook her own wealth for the love of the poor and the oppressed. She has rightly taken her place now in history as one of the fighters for Irish independence and the rights of women, not only in Ireland, but worldwide. Keep on listening to TRP.